You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it, wow. out. I it was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true stories of how science has affected people's lives. This week's story is from David Epstein. The story was recorded in December 2013 at Littlefield in Brooklyn. The theme of the evening was The Dark Side. So, Coach Phillips was a crazy guy. He used to come along with us on runs, and if a car turned too close in front of us, he'd punch the door as hard as he could. If the driver stopped to yell at him, he'd run right up to the driver's side window and scream, Get out! Get out! Get out! until the driver just realized they would lose that battle of lunacy and just drove away. He once chased me with a raccoon carcass for motivation. This inspires undying devotion in a high school boy. So when he spoke, I listened. But I didn't want to listen that day before my senior track season when he gave me a babysitting job. So Evanston had had an influx of Jamaicans in the 1970s and 80s, and it left my high school loaded with outstanding runners. We hadn't lost a conference championship in 24 years. Phillips had just seen some Jamaican boy run and he was, he was yelling about him. Eighth grade, he said. He was doing workouts that you guys would struggle with. No way. I was the anchor leg of the 4x800 meter relay team. We were one of the best in the state. An incoming freshman is just a little boy. Phillips said, you're going to take care of Kevin Richards. He wanted me to look out for the kid, drive him home from practice, help him with his homework, keep him out of trouble. Uh, because if you do, Phillips said, you're going to be all state. So Kevin was actually from the rough part of Evanston. I know it sounds crazy, Evanston, right? <laughs> but it's actually the only city in Illinois that has a median household income over $50,000 and a double-digit percentage of the population below the poverty line. A kid was shot two tables away in my, Frenchman lunchroom, in my freshman lunchroom. Kevin lived not far from a crack house that was raided in a bus that netted mostly teenagers and a nine-year-old. When Kevin showed up for our first time trial to see who would be on varsity, he came in late, leaning back and pedaling furiously on a bike that was missing its front wheel. Showed up just in time to start running and then out-sprinted me at the end of the race. I took my shoes and threw them in the garbage afterward in disgust. This was the kid that I was supposed to look after. He was painfully shy. He'd look down at his feet whenever he spoke, except for occasionally on a long run when he wouldn't shut up about his dream to be a video game designer and all the characters he'd designed based on guys on our team. Turns out Kevin uh, didn't really need help with his homework. He was actually something of a computer savant. And his mother, Gwendolyn, had noticed and took on a second job so that she could buy him a PC. As the season wore on, I actually became fast friends with Kevin. It, it pained me to be occasionally beaten by a freshman, but I realized I was in the presence of a rare talent. And I, I grew up a little. I became glad he was on my side. After workouts, he'd say, I love being sore. It feels like you did something. 
With his help, we were All-State that year. Now, I went on to run at Columbia University, and he went on to become a state champion the very next year. And I was really excited to see what my friend would become. College scholarship? In the bag. Olympian? Not out of the question for him. Video game designer? He was well on his way. I was back at Columbia at a basketball game in the stands when my roommate came in one day and told me that Coach Phillips had called. So when halftime rolled around, I went out to a payphone, and I called him back. He said, Phillips said, David, Kevin died at the track today. And I said, it's early in the season, Coach, happens to the best of us. To say a runner died means that the pace of the race was too fast, and he tried to go with it anyway, only to hit sort of a physiological wall and slow to near walking pace. Phillips came back on the line and said, David, listen to me. Kevin died at the track today. Kevin was dead. He died steps after the mile race. And I dropped the phone and broke down in tears there. Kevin had started as someone who intimidated me, really even embarrassed me. But soon he became more than just a guy to me. He became the best possibility of my hometown, the kid from the seedy pocket bordering Chicago who was going to be the first in his family of Jamaican immigrants to go to college. I couldn't understand how this could happen to the kid who was doing everything he was supposed to be doing. For young me, it was an introduction into a world where good people don't necessarily get what they deserve, where good people sometimes drop dead after the mile. I lost my equilibrium. You know, I needed some answer, some reason, some explanation for why this happened. So it was the summer before I was headed off to geology grad school when I finally worked up the courage to ask Kevin's parents a simple question. What happened? His father, Rupert, said, heart attack. And it was right then that I realized I had no idea what heart attack means. I asked a couple more questions, but there were no more answers. His mother, Gwendolyn, said, the Lord giveth David and the Lord taketh. Kevin's parents had another child to take care of, and they had multiple jobs. They didn't have time to go searching for answers, but I still had some summer left, and I needed an answer. So I asked them there if they would sign a waiver that allowed me to gather up Kevin's medical records. They did, and I went and tracked down doctors that he'd seen. I learned he'd been complaining of lower back problems, that he had trouble waking up the morning before his last race. But it was at the hospital about a block away from my house where a nurse slid a manila envelope across a granite counter where I started to get an answer. The medical examiner's notes said that a normal adult male heart weighs 300 grams, but Kevin's weighed 554. And there were these strange words, myocardial disarray. That is, rather than being stacked neatly like bricks in a wall, the cells of Kevin's heart muscle were all askew as if the bricks had just been thrown into a pile instead. I pestered cardiologists until I found Barry Marin of the Minneapolis Heart Institute, and I called him, and he said, textbook HCM. What? hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Somewhere along the three billion bases in Kevin's DNA, that's the letters, so to speak, he had a mutation at the precise location to cause a broken heart. That's like one typo in those letters, in enough, in enough words to fill 16 full sets of Encyclopedia Britannica, but just in the wrong spot. So somewhere in the last lap of Kevin's last race, the electrical signals that cue his heart to pump had misfired horribly. Rather than flexing and relaxing methodically, his heart trembled like jelly in a shaken jar. His left ventricle, the chamber that takes oxygenated blood from the lungs and sends it hurtling through the body to the organs and muscles, malfunctioned, causing a circulatory traffic jam. Blood backed up in the capillaries in Kevin's lungs. Those are blood vessels so narrow that red blood cells have to move through them in single file. The water in those capillaries pushed through the walls and settled into the air sacs in his lungs, so water occupied the spaces where oxygen should have been, 
Kevin started to drown in his own body's water. So of all the times that his, ga- his worth had been gauged by the clock, those next few minutes on the track would be the most critical of his life, as his brain cells began to die in droves in the poison, oxygenless environment of his own head. Medics rushed in with defibrillator paddles. They'd try to jolt him, like jump-starting a car back to life. But his body just rose and slapped right back down to the rubber track with each jolt. He was dead right there. So one in 500 Americans actually have the mutation for HCM. Everyone here has passed someone with it today. At least once every other week, an athlete will drop dead somewhere on the field. I was amazed at how common this was and how little was being done to prevent it. And so I decided with with what I had learned, I wanted to raise awareness about HCM, and I wanted to do it in the most public way I could. And the best thing I could think of was to write about HCM in Sports Illustrated, because that was the biggest mainstream sports publication I could think of. So I came back from the Arctic in Alaska, where I was doing my master's research, and I took a journalism class. And pretty soon I left science altogether and went to journalism school, and I did my master's project on sudden cardiac death in athletes. I sent it off to Sports Illustrated to see what would happen. It landed on the desk of Richard Demack, the only editor there who happened to be a med school dropout. He liked it. He told me to keep in touch while I got some journalism experience, so I took the only job that I could get because I was the only person stupid enough to take it, which was the night shift at the New York Daily News. So nothing happy that's going in the New York Daily News happens between midnight and the morning, let me tell you. I then left there to join a startup that was covering higher ed in Washington, D.C., and two and a half years later, Richard Demack called. He said, we have somebody going on maternity leave. Would you like to come for a temp fact-checking job? I said, shit, man, I just got a dentist for the first time in my adult life, you know? But it would move me closer to my goal of getting HCM and SI, so I went. From being a real legitimate reporter to fact-checking TV listings. On my first day at Sports Illustrated, John McEnroe's agent screamed at me. Not even John McEnroe. John McEnroe's agent. I pitched my story about HCM, and an editor told me that it wasn't right for the magazine, at which point I was truly lost. Then the Olympic marathon trials for the 2008 Olympic marathon in Beijing came to Central Park. So 150 of the best male marathoners in the country would vie for three spots on the Olympic team. And there in Central Park, 20 blocks from the Sports Illustrated office, one of the top contenders dropped dead in the street. An editor came and asked me, do you still have that reporting about sudden death in athletes? Yeah. Great, I want you to give a file to, and then he named a famous Sports Illustrated reporter. He wanted me to give it away. I couldn't sleep that night. I wrote him a long letter saying that I'd really appreciated my opportunity there, but I would rather leave than give away my reporting. For some reason I still can't understand, Chris Stone, who's currently the head of the magazine, decided to back me up. And I ended up getting to write my story. It was 5,000 words in Sports Illustrated mentioned on the cover, and I got messages from all over the country from people who had had a friend or family member drop dead, you know, who had a cousin who died uh, swimming laps, even though he's a varsity swimmer, that's really a cardiac arrest, and they, they were getting checked and finding that their families had been decimated by this disease. Senator Tom Coburn, who had been obstructing uh, genetic testing that could find HCM, I wrote really critically about him, and he relented. He was looking out for the genetic testing rights of the fetus. That's why he was obstructing it. So this was like a dream come true. And then in August, I wrote a book about genetics and sports, and Kevin is chapter 15 of that book. So I realize now everything that brought me right here, right now, right to this stage, talking to you, started with the death of my friend, steps after a mile race. Thank you very much for listening.
That was David Epstein. David is author of the recent New York Times bestseller, The Sports Gene, an exploration of the genetic basis of athleticism. He's currently an investigative reporter at the nonprofit ProPublica. Up until September, he was a senior writer at Sports Illustrated. He has been a crime reporter at the New York Daily News and an education reporter at Inside Higher Ed. For more science stories, take a look at storycollider.org, where we have archives of the podcast and upcoming events. And again, if you'd like to donate before December 18th, we'd really appreciate it at storycollider.org donate. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Weck, Darren Barker, and Ari Daniel. The podcast is produced by Rose Avalith. Additional help from Brooke Williams, Lena Groger, and Justin D'Ambrosio. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Littlefield for hosting the show and to my jeans for making it clear I should never play sports. Thanks for listening.